I'm Sarah Resnick. And I'm LaShawn Moore. And we are the hosts of the Weave Podcast, a project of the weaving yarn shop, Just Yarn and Fiber. Hello. Hi, everyone. I hope all is well. In this week's episode, I'm speaking with Chanel Wu. Chanel is a Taiwanese-American, non-binary, queer maker who uses their fiber skills to entangle craft and tech. Chanel is pursuing a PhD in creative technology design at Atlas Institute, University of Colorado Boulder, and we're lucky to have Chanel on the podcast this week. Hello, Chanel. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Hi. (laughs) Yeah, it's great to be on here. So I'm Chanel Wu. I also go by S and I am a all around crafter. I guess I'll start with where I am now. I am currently on the stolen lands of the Ute, Cheyenne, and Arapaho peoples, also known as Boulder, Colorado. Um, And I'm currently a PhD student here working on research in human-computer interaction, but specifically smart textiles design, which is why I'm kind of like around this bubble. And how I got here is kind of a meandering story, but overall, I am I'm a non-binary Han Taiwanese person with ADHD, so a lot of, pardon, like my tangents and wandering and stuff. No, nope, um, it's not a tangent. No worries. <laughs> Thank you but, for being open and sharing. Yeah, of course. I'm really conscious of how all of these identities shape every part of my existence. So yeah, as I mentioned, my parents are Taiwanese. They immigrated here and I was born on the West Coast in the Bay Area. But they moved when I was just a baby to Las Vegas, Nevada, where I grew up. So I think that's that's where I identify as where I'm from and where I had community growing up. So yeah, I stayed on the West Coast pretty much for most of my life. I went to undergrad in the LA area and I actually, my, <laughs> my bachelor's is in physics and computer science. So hmm. that's actually where I started my crafting because I was a very stressed out physics major and I needed something to do with my hands and also something to get my eyes off of a screen or out of a textbook. So that's how I picked up knitting. Um, What was weird is that wasn't my first time knitting because I had definitely learned a couple of times, a few times um, when I was little from people in my community. I just like my grandma used to knit and crochet before her arthritis set in. So she or one of her friends would teach me because it was cute to teach a little kid how to knit, but I would never, (laughs) um, never stuck with it for more than an afternoon. And it wasn't until college, I think I had the maturity and like attention span to actually sit down and do, do a project with it. (laughs) it's interesting to hear you talk about having such an extensive background in tech um in your bio you stated that you use your fiber skills to entangle craft and tech can you go in depth with what that means and maybe some of the projects that you've worked on that illustrate that yeah definitely i think that describes where i'm at with trying to reconcile by both my creative and technical 
interests. Um, I think I've always been a really creative person, but also really needing a this like technical rigor. Um, but yeah, I was a really fidgety kid. I was not diagnosed with ADHD until a couple years ago, actually. So a while. Um, and, and so it's kind of interesting to get this lens to look back on my past. Um, yeah, I was, I loved drawing. I loved like making things and crafts, but then I was also really into math and robotics and building stuff in that way. And so I think I've always looked for some way to merge those interests and not have them in conflict. Because I think with the way my schooling experience was, it it felt like I couldn't have both. Like, oh, you need to take this calculus class so you don't have time to like take a studio art class or something. And so yeah, my undergrad was in physics, so like kind of purely technical. Um, and it was in senior year, my senior year of undergrad, that I took an art history course that was offered at my undergrad. My undergrad, um, Harvey Mudd College, is like a STEM liberal arts school. So they take a liberal arts approach to the sciences and makes you they make you take a bit of everything, but they also have a humanities and arts requirement, um, which, you know, it's, it's, you only have so much time in the day. It's, it's definitely hard to do everything. Um, but as part of that, they did offer some really cool arts courses. And one of them was um, a course that I think has basically pointed me to my current research direction, which and its title was Craft and Technology. Um, so it was taught by Christy Matson, who's a jacquard weaver and just all around awesome artist in the LA area. Um, and so she taught a history of craft that was really, yeah, entangled the tech. Um, and it opened my eyes to seeing that, like, craft and working with materials in your environment is a really old form of human technology. And it is what so much of what we see today with what we call technology and kind of don't ca and forget about other forms of technology with computers, smartphones, that's all based on crafts and that there's actually so much lineage from textile practices. Um, and that's really, so that framework, I think really informed what I wanted to do when I graduated. I wanted to go into research because it is a, research to me is a creative practice, um, but I wasn't super interested in like physics research because I didn't see the possibilities I wanted for building something that actually mattered or like immediately. So, you know, I could, I could have some sort of optical setup and measure some important property, you know, like subatomic particles, but I wouldn't be able to see that actually affect how maybe that would affect our like the design of electronic systems until like 20, 50 years down the road. So I think I needed 
I needed the instant gratification of like, let me build some, I want to build something. And yeah, so when I found out that smart textiles and e-textiles was this field um, and research discipline, which by the way, is like just the general, the way I define it is the general um, the general concept of combining textiles, um, structures like weaving, knitting, um, and techniques to felting, sewing with digital electronics, sewing or, in, you know, putting in sensors and circuits into textile things. Um, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, where I was going with all that was... At this stage, I guess in my in my practice, I see um, crafting as technology, and I also see the technology in our lives as crafted objects unto themselves. Mm, that's so fascinating and so deep. <laughs> I, I've never thought of it in that way. <laughs> I think it really that perspective. Um, really spoke to me because I also see a lot of room for, you know, reframing tech outside of like big tech and white dude programmers. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it by including all of these practices throughout human history as technology, um, which they should have been included from the start, but, you know, <sighs> um, systems of privilege and all that. Um, and colonialism. So it opens up much more room for just alternate dialogues of like, okay, how can we make better systems for our world? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, I'm also thinking about just uh, how a lot of the equipment or machinery or the technology in the fiber and textile system is so kind of antiquated and um, mm -hmm. there has kind of been a surge of interest in technology and sort of updating a lot of the ways in which we use uh, fibers and textiles. And so that's kind of where my mm -hmm. mind went when you started to, to talk about it. And then the way that you put it, which was so great, um, was that you see fiber, uh, excuse me, that you see um, fiber making techniques as technology. It's just, you know, and, and tr truthfully it is, mm -hmm. you know, it, it is technology and it's in, in its own way. It's just, it's sort of been ingrained in us to look at things, especially that are, um, I don't know, uh, I'm trying to think of a way to describe it. Um, like for me, the work that I do, mm. it's a lot of research based on like ancestral methods, mm. right? And those are techniques. That's technology. Yeah. Um, and so, um, just, just thinking about everything that you're saying, <laughs> just kind of, you know, <laughs> it just kind of opened my mind a little bit, um, in, in another way. Nice. <laughs> I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah. Um, you have given me a little soapbox here and I kind of ran away with it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, that kind of like immediate association of like, oh, textiles is like old fashioned or like low tech um, and, you know, computers mm. and shiny things and holograms are high tech and 
mm-hmm. um, better because they're new is that sort of like cultural current I I really try to push back on. Um, mm. Because yeah, a lot of these ancestral practices around the world are, it also goes back to sustainability. Um, these ancestral practices and in indigenous peoples all over the world have like maintained healthy relationships with their environment through their technologies of relating with each other, relating with the land, working with materials. And it's something that our tech today doesn't do. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's so much for us to learn yeah. from how these communities have been able to live and sustain um, using these technologies. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 so interesting and it's it's so fascinating to kind of think about it in that way. Thank you for bringing that. <laughs> of course, yeah. And I would love to hear at any point, you know, your perspectives on like kind of the state of textiles today. I. Yeah, I really want to, because I, I was like a self-taught crafter, I would love to hear more from maybe people in the more industrial side of textiles, like the people at the wool mills and stuff. So that's that's why I love listening to your podcast. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting, right? Because right now we see the fall of textiles, at least in the American textile industry mm-hmm. and it has a lot to do with uh, a lot of companies taking their business overseas and farmers not being able to sustain their crop and and yes it has a lot to do with sending a lot of the the sourcing overseas and the making of things overseas mm-hmm. but it also for me in my research I find has a lot to do with just starting out from a very unsustainable point like the amount of farming that has been done mm-hmm. you know specifically for crops like cotton is unsustainable yeah it it is not a system that would have ever lasted and it's kind of not being a- it's not able to keep up because it started from a really unsustainable point. Yeah. And that's also very different. So also try to make sure that I differentiate commercial farming from smaller, small scale farmers mm-hmm. because it's a very, very, very different, you know, industry. Yeah. But um yeah, like commercial farming and the industri- the industrialization of farming and, you know, Monsanto and, yeah. and all of these really, really, really large, you know, entities, you know, they really um, started out in in what I would consider negative, and even in other conversations mm. where I talk to people who work in the fashion aspect of things, they say the same thing. Um, I believe it was a conversation with Lydia from California Cloth Foundry um, when she was mm. really got to see the very beginning of the fast fashion industry, oh boy. and she basically broke it down and and said like. It, they started out on the wrong foot. They didn't know what they were doing was as sustainable as it was, mm-hmm. but um, it was never good. It it wasn't like the textile industry, and and when I say textile industry, I don't mean the making of textiles or or indigenous people or cultures who make things from fibers mm-hmm. and keep it within their community. I mean, like the industry of it really was never sustainable. It was never good. Mm. 
right? It never functioned in a good way. Um, and so now we're in a space where we're seeing it fall and people are finally looking at sustainability, but it's almost like they, they have no choice, mm-hmm. right? They have to because this, this ship is, <laughs> yeah, it was never, it was never part of this. It was never intended to be part, an aspect of the system, sustainability. And right. Yeah, that definitely makes me think of how in my current field, which like in computing overall, I think a lot of people don't really go back before maybe like World War II uh, for, you know, the start of computing, um, because that's when we had ENIAC and all these room size servers and so on. But um, and if they really go back, they'll maybe go to like the mechanical calculators of like the late 1800s. Um, and then in our lab, at least where we start talking about smart textiles and the entanglement of computing and digital technology with textiles, we start people with the jacquard loom because that is the earliest example they generally can think of. They're like, oh yeah, jacquard looms were early computers. But I'm like, okay, let's back it up even more. We're easing you in, (laughs) baby steps here. Um, But think about all of the previous iterations of looms that the jacquard loom was based on and that the jacquard module was just an add-on to earlier looms to begin with and gradually got worked more and more into the system that focused on automation and industrialization. Um, So yeah, I think I like to, in my work, I like to take this historical approach of, yeah, really interrogating where do these systemic problems, where did they start? How did they like get encoded into everything? Yeah. And that's such a huge question, right? Like it's, it's so, it's massive and it it branches off into everything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like everything um, is, is, is affected by it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's where my ADHD is both a blessing and a curse because I'm realizing lately just because, yeah, I haven't spent that much time with this clear lens on my brain that, with ADHD, I have a really hard time seeing ideas in isolation, which is really hard for writing and, you know, talking coherently. Um, but it is definitely good for seeing those, like, deeply hidden connections between things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's almost, you know... It's it's also like being interdisciplinary and kind of um, drawing from multiple places and finding commonalities. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's such a, I mean, it's a it's a telltale sign of a great artist, right? Oh, <laughs> to, I mean, to really be able to, you know, yeah, I definitely have been struggling with. Well, I can look at all these things and hold them, at least like hold them in the same space but what does output look like like what do i do with it i think that's why i've had so much trouble with actually making something um recently which could also yeah just be this pandemic year um Mm -hmm. 
Well, I think also, and this is something that I've learned and advice that I've gotten from other artists, Mm -hmm. which I will share with you and also our listeners, is that, you know, as artists, we go through seasons Mm -hmm. and we go through moments of making. And even while we're not physically making something, it's a part of the process. Like you could just be developing the idea in your head for one or two years. And by the time you actually get to the point where you can use, you know, your hands or, or your materials there's nothing blocking you. you. You've had this idea for so long. Now you have the opportunity to, to like bring it to fruition. Yeah, That's really comforting to hear. Thanks for sharing that. <laughs> yeah, no problem. And also I'm the same boat. Like I, my first year farming, um, I didn't make anything. I, I didn't do any form of fiber art. Um, and it was because that just wasn't, that wasn't my art. That wasn't my medium at the moment. And then um, time when I'm making, I'm not necessarily thinking about farming or growing. And so, uh, but it is, it all informs each other. It's one thing leads to the next, which leads to the next. And, you know, it's, it's good to, to have that space or to have different spaces for things. Definitely. But um yeah. And, and I'm curious also, so I saw that you have, that you, I, I don't want to say recently, but I noticed um, like sometime around last year, mm-hmm. you got a really beautiful floor. Oh, thanks. And yeah. I'm really curious if you can talk about your weaving practice specifically, mm-hmm. um, what type of equipment you use. Yeah. Um. So that floor loom, man, I can't believe it's been about a year since I got it. Um. I remember getting it the now that now that you mention it like i recall it really vividly and i can't believe it's been a whole year um but i got it the week that lockdown um pol- like uh restrictions were going into effect in my area or every like kind of officials and local authorities had just figured out all the the regulations to like put forth as the first version so like late mid late march um but then on Facebook, so I was already in this headspace of like, oh my God, everything's shifting. I need to figure out how to go get groceries now or like do this. And I was taking the bus to campus still safe. Um, and then I was like crawling Facebook, um, Facebook Marketplace. And I saw someone had posted this loom, um, was like, you know, downsizing my, my you know, craft equipment. It was 300 bucks. And I'm like, uh, I guess I could look at my accounts and see, do I need to? So I was in this, like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, I didn't take I'm like, okay, can I swing this right now? And I, yeah, I just cut myself off from overthinking. I'm like, okay, you know what? I'll make it work. Um, I can like go to the ATM, grab that cash. Um, and I messaged the person. They responded right away. Like, this is this all one afternoon. And I'm like, hey, roomies, could I borrow a car? <laughs> um, um, it ended up being, I asked the person for dimensions. It turned out the loom would not fit in either of my roommate's cars. So I messaged a friend in the neighborhood and I'm like, hey, you have a, uh, do you have a car with a big trunk? And she was like, yeah, I'm a mom. And I have, and in Colorado, we have a Subaru. <laughs> like this trunk can hold anything. 
do you need it? Borrow it. Here's some hand sanitizer and Clorox for, you know, after for sanitizing. Um, and so, yeah, I went with one of my roommates and we drove to the other side of town, uh, picked up this loom and uh, put it upstairs in my, what's now my workspace, <laughs> my work from home space. So yeah, I really love that this, I got this loom. There's a story behind getting the loom, but then there was, this loom already had a story when it came to me because after talking with the previous owner, that uh, she was a local artist who weaving wasn't so much in her practice anymore. Um, I think she mentioned she teaches uh, workshops with elementary schoolers and does a lot more felting, which makes sense. It's easier to do that and like teach the basics to kids um and so yeah she was she had this loom that she had bought from her mfa um school where they were downsizing their loom collection <laughs> so yeah um it needed a bit of fixing up um just from sitting in a garage when i got it but it was really nice to clean it, oil it, get everything working, see what parts I needed to replace. Not, it was in pretty good shape. It was mostly just the cleaning. Um, but yeah, I haven't woven on it in recent months because I think I know how to work with a few different kinds of loom, uh, looms. It was really nice to have a floor loom at home. Um, before this, I, if I did weaving at home, it was mostly stuff I could fit in my lap, um, like tapestry weaving or uh, pin loom weaving. Um, at my lab, um, so at my lab at CU Boulder, we do actually have a TC2 um, jacquard loom, um, but that obviously I can't take home. Um, but I would go to lab whenever I, and then. There's also a floor loom in the lab. Uh, so I I got used to going to campus whenever I needed to do bigger weaving than just something I could have in my lap. Um, and then with quarantine, I was like, uh, I need something at home uh, in case I need to do bigger projects. But yeah, my weaving practice is kind of all over the place. I feel like it didn't really start again, like knitting. I probably, I did it a few times as a kid. Um, I think my parents still have like the tapestry weaving that I made in like first grade where, you know, the art teacher told you how to cut slots into a paper plate and make a, a little loom, <laughs> which I really I hope I'm not putting my past self down. I really do like that little thing. It's good job. The little And they're, they're so great. I, I love all of the different um, types of um, looms. And they also make weaving so accessible as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, that's one thing I like to emphasize about weaving. And I think Annie Albers in her um, On Weaving essays said it best where it was like i'm paraphrasing badly here that 
the elegance of weaving is that given enough time and patience, even on the simplest loom, you can do just picking by hand what, you know, the most advanced your card loom can weave. It's just the overs and unders. Um, and I really love that um, about textiles. So yeah, I definitely experiment with a, a lot of techniques and different, I guess, equipment configurations. Um, and yeah, I have some trouble making bigger pieces um, as because I spend all my time, I feel like, uh, experimenting. But yeah, I am proud of that on my floor loom last spring, I was able to weave two fairly large projects. I wove a cover for my office chair, just like as a test rectangle the first time I warped up the loom and just wove the entire warp and saw like how much is how much like excess would be left at the beginning and end of the warp. Um, yeah, I turned that into a, just a cover for my office chair. And then I did weave a vest on my frame loom as the next project, which is, which is really fun to weave a whole garment. Wow. And how did that go? Um, it was, <laughs> it was kind of a stressful project because I committed to doing it as a class project. And then I'm like, oh no, final presentations in two weeks. And I said I would do this. And so I, I like warped the thing and wove the entire uh, vest. And it was like, it was like 3 or 4 a.m. before the presentation, which was like at 9 a.m. And I was weaving in the ends. Wow. <laughs> I can imagine. I know I, I have like trunks of <laughs> half finished projects from when I was in school. Yeah. <laughs> I'm that way with sewing. <laughs> sewing is so hard for me to finish mm -hmm. because it's all finishing for me. <laughs> yeah. I have so many jackets where I just need to finish the lining in the sleeve or I need to connect these two pieces yeah. where, you know, I didn't put buttons, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. So I definitely feel that. I'm really curious about your YouTube page mm -hmm. or your YouTube channel. It's so interesting. I watched a few of the videos and I'm curious if you can talk about what inspired you to start sharing um, on YouTube and also some of the series that you have on there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, my YouTube is in recent years has gotten pretty sporadic, but I started, um, I started uploading videos about my knitting pretty early on after I started knitting. So I mentioned I started, I taught myself how to knit in college and it was from YouTube um, with a bunch of YouTube tutorials. And I also stumbled into the world of knitting podcasts um, and videos on YouTube. And that was this really cool way of people who it seemed like a lot of people felt isolated in their own practices. So they would just kind of use podcasting and sharing their projects as a way to reach out to other crafters who might be in similar situations. And I kind of felt that as a STEM major who it was kind of a 
I didn't get like flack for it or necessarily like shamed for it, but it was, you know, I didn't really have anyone else to geek out about like knitting lace patterns or uh, spinning or getting into spinning my yarn as a, yeah, I just didn't have anyone else to really talk about that with. Eventually I did rope up, rope, rope in enough of my friends that we had a decent knitting group, but that was because I taught them. So, <laughs> so yeah, it started with that. I have not done a podcast episode. Um, because it ended up being too much of a, what felt like a production um, that I just didn't have bandwidth for. Um, but it is a, I want to hold on to it as a way of sharing my practice, um, sharing parts of my research, and kind of getting over that same stage fight I felt uh, before starting to record this interview with you. Um, <laughs> Because if I am to stay in academic research, you know, my work output will have to be publications that I hit submit on and kind of just put out into the world. Um, so, yeah, particular series on that. I remember you mentioned in particular Unfabricate and uh, Sister Strands. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll start with Sister Strands um, because that was a nice trip down memory lane. So this was after I had, um, right after I graduated my undergrad, I had moved to New Jersey for a couple of years um, where I was teaching, but then also just kind of taking a break from tech. Um, I freelanced um, a lot more as a knitwear designer and also as an instructor um, at a uh, mostly at a yarn store in, which is called Yarnia, which is the such a great name. <laughs> and so this was um, done in collaboration with Mars um, or Marceline, and her screen name is Hey Brownberry all over the nets. Um, and she was, she's a really good friend that I met through knitting Instagram. And that's where I have a lot of appreciation for how digital platforms can form, help us form communities. And we just started, um, she was, we both kind of had a similar approach to knitting and that we like to reverse engineer techniques or just kind of like really focus on the process of learning um, in exploring a craft. And she was starting to learn how to dye yarn and I was um, learning more about spinning, um, especially with different forms of preparations of fiber. So I kind of, um, and I had just been to a local fiber festival and picked up some unspun wool of two different breeds. I can't remember. I think one was Coriadale, one was maybe BFL. Um, why do I remember these things, but not like, I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I bought two different breeds of, of wool. And I was like, hey, Mars, do you want to do an experiment where we split these in half? We have two different breeds of wool, same preparation. 
what about we do something where we split them in two again, split each batch of wool in half. I'll send you ha- half of each. And so I have four ounces of one breed, four ounces of another breed. I'll spin the yarn. I'll spin them undyed into yarn, one skein each. And then you'll dye it in the wool and you'll dye it in the roving and then we'll swap. And then you dye the spun yarn. I will spin the dyed roving and we'll see what happens. So it was, that was a really fun exchange. Yeah. And, and I also enjoyed watching that video and um, I also enjoyed watching Unfabricate as well, which is like um, a, a presentation. I'm really curious if you can kind of talk about that as well. So Unfabricate, um, that presentation that you saw on YouTube was what I've been mentioning about like the output. I It was a research project that I, I started... Um, I started first as just kind of a, a side project and personal exploration and was able to, um, write into a research paper to publish in my field about designing smart textiles for assembly. And just FYI, when I say smart textiles, you can basically interpret that to mean all textiles because I do see you know, what we call traditional textiles as smart before we started using that buzzword. (laughs) So it started, I started making, there are some earlier videos there on, on my YouTube of me taking apart some sweaters that I got from the thrift store and unraveling them for yarn. Um, and yeah, kind of trying to reverse engineer their uh, creation process. Um, because the whole thing that got me started on that disassembly was kind of going back to what I was saying about there are things that textiles can do that our computers can't. And one is to be able to take apart and recycle and reuse their materials easily. Um easily in that it's still a time-consuming process, but it's built into all of the structures that we use. We don't glue the yarns together. We just, you know, weave and knit them into loops and they can unravel because of that. Um, And it'd be so nice to, you know, be able to completely and easily take apart your computer without releasing a bunch of toxic chemicals. And, you know, maybe have to use them to like, you know, patch up your air conditioning around the house or something. Um, and so I, I did those kind of like firsthand unraveling experiences to, as a kind of design ethnography of the objects themselves. Um, and And yeah, from there, kind of design a, those were all knits. And so since my lab focuses on woven textiles, I started to try um, incorporating what I found about what makes knits unravelable into a woven structure. 
um, and then use that as a proof of concept for, okay, if we can modify the structures of our text, of our smart textiles for the future, and if we can modify, you know, the tools that we're using to make them, can this translate into bigger lessons for how to make, how to manufacture technology and hardware that's more sustainable and reusable? And so that's what you see as the presentation, which was presented in lieu of all the conferences being canceled last year. So I gave a virtual talk. <laughs> yeah, and it also is so excellent. And thank you for kind of giving us um, a synopsis of what you talked about and also talking to us about the range of topics that your work kind of touches on. Can you tell our listeners where they can find your YouTube and also links to follow you on social media? Yeah. Um, so I am at Piper Nell most everywhere on the internet. That's just kind of the screen name that has happened in the past few years. Um, that's P-I-P-E-R-N-E-L-L. -L. Um, so I'm on YouTube under that username as well as Instagram. Um, and you can also find my work on my personal slash portfolio website, sminliwoo.github.io. Um, and yeah, uh, best way to reach me would be Instagram or email, emailing me at pipernellart at gmail.com. Um, because I would love to be in dialogue with anyone who's interested in talking about these, the themes that I'm working with, how to make, you know, better systems and taking lessons from textiles to the world. Because, yeah, I've learned that while I can build things and make things in isolation, the only way these things have meaning is if, I actually have conversations with the people who might take take it up and build more things with it or use it. Amazing. Thank you so much. And I have one question for mm -hmm. you before you go. And it's a question that we ask everyone that joins the podcast. And that is, do you have any advice or words of wisdom to share with weavers and textile <laughs> enthusiasts? Yeah, every time you ask that on previous, on like, episodes I listen to, I'm like, oh, what would I say? And I would say, oh, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> just try it. If you make a mistake, you can turn it into a feature um, or learn something bigger about the process. So just try it and see what happens. Amazing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate everything that you shared with us. Thanks for talking to me, LaShawn. I'm so honored to be here. Um, and I look forward to keeping in touch. Absolutely. That's a wrap. If you're interested in seeing images of Chanel's work or to read a full transcript of this week's episode, you can find links in the show notes at www.justyarn.com slash episode dash 137. As always, thank you for tuning into this week's episode. Until next time, happy weaving. Mm -hmm.